It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today. We discuss updates from Ukraine, get the latest on developments around nuclear sabre-rattling, and we interview John Spencer, author of the mini-manual for the Urban Defender. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 6th of December, day 286. And today, I'm joined by three experts who are all former soldiers. Our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, former British Army colonel who is now director of Doctors Under Fire and an expert of chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear weapons, Hamish de Bratton Gordon. And our guest today is John Spencer, former US Army, who's now an author and chair of Urban Warfare Studies. I started by asking Dom for the latest from Ukraine. Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. It's been a day of, or 24 hours, of aerial activity. So I'll come on to yesterday's drone strikes in just a moment. But the news from this morning was that there was another drone strike on an airfield inside Russia in the Kursk region. It borders Ukraine. Um, No no further details about that. However, um, it comes just a day after those two big strikes yesterday. So firstly, on the, on the, the one in the Kursk region, the local governor has said that uh, as a result of the drone strike in the area of the Kursk airfield, this is a direct quote, an oil storage tank caught fire. There were no casualties. OK, fine. So we'll, we'll deal with that as the, as the news comes out. Of course, remember yesterday, the initial news that came from Russia's Russian uh, media channels was that there was a fuel truck that had caught fire and uh, killed three people and injured some others. I mean, that turns out that was technically true, but the fuel truck caught fire as part of the explosion that, that smashed up the TU-95 TU, uh, Bear long-range bomber next to it. So on to those strikes. Um Yesterday, we had uh, two two strikes in, deep, deep inside inside Russia, uh, thought to be now the, the you know, yet to be confirmed. Ukraine still haven't claimed responsibility. Nobody has claimed responsibility, but it's assessed to be uh, an attack by Ukraine. When we think it was the Tupolev Tu-141 Stryj drone, which translates very rough, roughly and not just my bad translation, but translates as swift. Now, this is an old... Um, Soviet-era reconnaissance drone. I think they also used them for um, aerial targets for jets to go up against and what have you. I mean, first seen in the 1970s, really basic technology. Um, and it shouldn't have got that far. It shouldn't have got hundreds of kilometres inside Russia, from, no matter where it came from. I mean, the, the air defences should have have seen it coming, should have done something about it. Um, 
just take your minds back to March the 10th of this year. Another Tubalev Tu-141 crashed in Zagreb, the capital of Croatia, having flown through Romanian and Hungarian airspace. Now, at the time, everyone thought that was a, a Russian drone. We still don't know. It might be Russian. Maybe it was it was Ukrainian testing uh, testing whatever they used yesterday. If indeed if indeed they did, um, we we don't know. I think probably it was it was Russian. Um, however, it caused a lot of consternation at the time. It flew over Croatia and, like I say, Romania and Hungary. Um, and it, it, although we are told it was picked up by NATO's air defences, it wasn't it wasn't dealt with. It wasn't uh, it wasn't shot down. Now it caused no no injuries, um, but it just shows that that. You know, air defence networks are not a total. You can get through them. However, it is still a glaring error, I think, by Russia to have um, to have the, the these long range strategic bomber sites um, attacked in this way. And we think two Tu ninety five bears were damaged in the in the strikes yesterday, and possibly some others. There were there were um, at the other at one of the sites. There's also it's the home for the Aleutian. Um, big aircraft that they use for for refueling, just as important. I mean, if you don't get your refueling aircraft in the air, you don't get your bombers in the air, basically. So onto the onto the strikes yesterday. So President Zelensky said that out of seventy missiles launched um, from Russia, launched by Russia, uh, most were shot down. They did result in in power cuts across all regions of the country. They are extending into today. The Ukrainian Air Force have given a few more details, and um, uh, going to get a bit bit technical here, but um, you know it's important to have what what information we can. So the Ukrainian Air Force is saying that there were 38 KH-101 or KH-555 missiles. Now, these are air-launched cruise missiles, ranges up to about 3,000 kilometres, slightly different between those two variants. But, you know, long-range air-launched cruise missiles. And Ukrainian Air Force is saying that they came from eight of these Tu-95 bombers, the Bear bombers. Ukrainian Air Force also saying that 22 calibre cruise missiles that we think were either ship launched or submarine launched from the Black Sea fleet, uh, from the Black Sea, uh, with ranges into the hundreds of kilometres. They were also fired. Three KH-22 anti-ship mus- missiles were fired by uh, Tu-22 bombers. These are the long-range supersonic Tupolev bombers. Interesting there, that, that chimes with what we've seen recently of Russia using munitions in its in their in their secondary capacity i.e that's an anti-ship missile it's being fired um, from the air towards the ground and as i say many times it will still go bang uh, when it gets to the x when it when it when it reaches its destination so it's still very dangerous but any missile any munition that's used not in its primary role is never going to be as efficient so the the, the guidance um, technology on these things will not be as good if they're going air to ground as opposed to sort of against a, against a ship it's just the way they're built and we think they're doing this because simply they are running out of other munitions they're running out of precision guided munitions they're running their stocks down they're having to in effect misuse what they've got left in the locker um, and finally there are a number of su-35 fighters these are the small small jet fighters but they fired a number of kh-31 harm missiles so these are the high uh, high speed anti-radiation missiles air to ground anti-radiation missiles these are designed to destroy ground-based air defences. So you've got the Ukrainian air defence network with their radars looking up into the sky. They emit energy to come and bounce off any big metal object in the in the sky, be it a plane or, or a missile. And what the uh, Su-35s are there to do is to fire missiles that home in on that radiated energy and destroy those radars. And that's the first thing that you would want to do um, ahead of any any package that you're trying to squeeze through to then to then head on to their to their targets. So 
a bit, a bit wonkish, but you know that that seems to be the detail. In total, about seventy missiles, of which most uh, were shot down. Most, of course, some got through. I don't think it killed anybody. We think there were injuries and there was damage to infrastructure, but we don't think there are any deaths. Importantly, though, I think yesterday is quite an important day um, because it shows fairly small, cheap and cheerful, fairly old anti-air defences, such as the German Gepard system, which is a self-propelled gun. Uh, twin 35 mil cannons that just blast a huge amount of lead into the sky to shoot shoot down aircraft or helicopters or cruise missiles or anything it's showing that that these weapons are are up to if they're in the in their numbers they are capable of defeating you know a very expensive air attack by russia and so when it comes down to the the economics of war I mean, you just can't keep... Russia will not be able to keep doing these strikes of 70 sort of air-launched cruise missiles and others at a time if most are being shot down. A few weeks ago, of course, when there was the clamour for Ukraine to be given these these smaller systems, they were having to use very expensive missiles, with, you know, some, some missiles um, costing in the hundreds of thousands of dollars were having to be used against the Shahid 136, the Iranian drones that cost about $20,000. So again, the economics there just do not work. But Ukraine seems to be in a better place now and is using um, older, more, you know, more simple simple kit against uh, some of these cruise missiles. Of course, there's still a long way to go. And as ever in, in the military world, it's cat and mouse. So they'll, they'll, the opposition will come up with some way to defeat your your systems and you then have to get past that and then they'll come up with a countermeasure, etc., etc. So uh, it was by no means over, but I think Ukraine are in a much better place than they were uh, just a few weeks ago. And, you know, I've been very critical of Germany in the past, but fair play to them for, for sending these Gepards. And I think they sent another six or agreed to send another six last week. So a quick blast there, no pun intended, on the on yesterday's air attack. There will be more, unfortunately. But I think the takeaway is that Ukraine managed to strike very, very deep inside Russia and defend itself from a, a, an air bombardment, which... For those uh, scholars, it will have to have happen in, in slow time. But I think yesterday will will prove to be a, a very interesting day in terms of the evolution of military warfare. But that's a conversation for another time. One more little piece of news before I, before I uh, stop here. Uh, remember last week we talked about Ukrainian embassies and diplomatic missions around the country, around sorry, around the world, being sent uh, hate mail and uh, letter bombs in the US. Uh, well, more bloody packages have arrived. The foreign minister said today in Romania and Denmark. This is after after last week. There are a number of packages containing animal eyes sent to um, Ukrainian diplomatic missions. I mean, it, it seems it, it's fairly a fairly low level attack in the the letter bomb in the US. The the security guard. Uh, had his, was injured in the hands and the face when the thing went off, but but no um, life-changing injuries, we are told. Um, so this is a fairly low-level attack, unlikely to be Russian state-sponsored, but it but it is, um, you know, as with as with any of these things, you get some crazies who sort of jump on the bandwagon and you get the uh, the copycat attacks. Um, no one's claiming responsibility for the for these latest attacks, but it's just it's just one to watch on watch there. And I'll I'll take a little pause. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom Nichols. Just a reminder to our listeners, uh, Dom Nichols and John Spencer, our guests today, are sharing the same phone. So you'll you'll see John speaking when sometimes it's Dom, but hopefully you'll be able to recognise uh, the difference between their voices. Um, Hamish de Breton-Gordon, thank you so much for joining us again. You've written a fascinating article for The Telegraph. The title is The West Has Taken Its Eyes Off the Nuclear Ball. That's for our listeners if you want to go and read it. Um, what did you mean by that? What do you think is happening? Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for having me on again. 
I think with the whole nuclear, nuclear rhetoric at the moment, um, we were, uh, Bob Seeley and I, who wrote it, Bob C, MP for the Isle of Wight, has studied Russia in great detail and actually lived in Ukraine. Um, we're looking back at what has happened in the last 20 years, really since the end of the Cold War, and the proliferation of nuclear weapons has been quite stark. Um, China has increased its holdings of nuclear warheads by, by three, up to 1,500. Um, Iran now appears to be nuclear capable. Certainly the Israelis are convinced about that. And also North Korea um, is, I don't think they're nuclear capable yet, but they have uh, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, and probably warheads, but probably haven't yet fitted them together. And I think that's against the backdrop of what we're seeing in Ukraine. Putin is using the nuclear issue, I think, generally to keep um, NATO out of the direct fight in Ukraine. Uh, and that is working. Um, Bob and I have also written a paper which sadly won't be published until January in the, in the US. But that is very much looking at because of the uh, way that nuclear weapons are proliferated and the fact that we've taken our eye off the ball, is that making it more likely that Putin will use the nuclear option in Ukraine? And I'll, I'll just unpack that a little bit. I mean, but, but going to the end, I don't think he will. Um, but there is one scenario which I'm very keen to get your views on where he might. And if we look at the context, um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a global treaty to prevent non-proliferation, hasn't met for many years, but did meet uh, last summer. The START talks, the Strategic Arms Limitation talks uh, between the US and Russia were supposed to be happening last week, um, but the Russians cancelled them at very short notice. Last week also, Putin said he was upgrading all his nuclear facilities in Russia. And only today, Lavrov has actually um, uh, declared that it's the NATO, NATO that's saber-rattling. And when we look at the potential for nuclear, um, I think the strategic piece, the Armageddon piece over Ukraine just won't happen. I think there are far too many checks and balances. The tactical nuclear weapons, euphemistically called the sort of smaller nuclear weapons, these are still massive, you know, 10,000 tonnes equivalent of conventional explosive. I, I agree with a lot of other commentators that these weapons are probably unusable. Interesting to hear British intelligence last week saying that the Russians were taking tactical nuclear warheads off cruise missiles to use them conventionally, uh, which in a way points to the fact that I'm sure the Brits and the American intelligence know exactly what's happening uh, with Putin's tactical nuclear weapons. So, uh, and also, I understand that the, the state of these things, which haven't probably been tested for, you know, ten or fifteen years, you know, it's very, it, it's it's possible that they don't work anyway. The third scenario, which I think is the one that most concerns me, is the weaponization of nuclear power stations. We've discussed before the fact that Putin is directly attacking infrastructure, particularly the power grid to break it down. Um, there are still two active nuclear power stations in Ukraine producing power, and there is a concern that they may be targeted. Uh, but it's great to hear that air defense is working so well. But Zaporizhia itself is a different kettle of fish. 
When I was the Peshmerga's chemical weapons advisor in the fight with ISIS, um, some listeners may remember that back in 2017, ISIS blew up a place called Al-Mishrak, a massive sulfur mine and sulfur uh, factory. This put a a huge cloud of sulfur dioxide in the air, 400,000 tons across the advancing Iraqi troops who were heading towards Mosul and, and delayed them for two or three weeks. And this brings me back to Zaporizhia, um, the, nu- the most likely um, way that Putin could use nuclear material because uh, if he decided to attack there, the downwind hazard, as we call it, would go straight across sort of due west, uh, across the top of um, Kherson and any direct approach into Crimea. And my my sort of question and point for discussion is, um, looking at Crimea, is Crimea Putin's vital ground? And in in military parlance, vital ground is ground that is lost would make your mission untenable and you should use all means and all weapons necessary uh, to hold it. Conversely, is Crimea Ukraine's vital ground? I, I would think that at the beginning of the war, pre-24th of February this year, it, maybe it wasn't Ukraine's vital ground. However, now, certainly with what is coming out of, um, of Kyiv, is that probably is. And would um, an, uh, a move into Ukraine, would that make Putin approach it slightly differently um, and potentially uh, lead to uh, the use of uh, either either nuclear or, I think in my position, more likely uh, Zaporizhia. I, I'll just stop there. I do, I do would, would like to plug our, 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 our application on Telegram, which teaches civilians how to prepare and survive any nuclear accident, but I'll come back to that. Absolutely. Thank you, Hamish. Well, we worked out before coming on air that today we have three uh, former soldiers with probably, we think, over 70 years of experience between them in, in, in the British and American uh, army. So let's take Hamish's question on Crimea and vital ground. And can I put it to Dom and John Spencer? Um, what would your thinking on this be? Well, David, thanks for having me and, and, and Dom as well. Honored to be a part of the show. I'm a, a, a weekly listener uh, Zaporizhia is, is a wicked problem. Uh, it's not my area of expertise, but I, I agree with the international community. Just, just set up a, a demilitarized zone around it. Get, get it out of the equation. Russians aren't going to do that. That's the most likely scenario. I've, I've liked that the, the UN um, inspectors have been there and, and, uh, and remain there to keep information flowing on what's actually happening to avoid. What I think Hamish is talking about, which is you, whether the Russians know they do it or not, some type of global incident because of the fact that they're using it as the base of operations. Thanks, John. Uh, Dom Nichols, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I think that is, at the moment, I think that's absolutely correct because Putin is is pushing this strategy of attacking the energy I don't think it's working at all. I think all the evidence there is that, that all it's doing is, is is hardening Ukrainian resolve. And so I just wonder if and when Putin realises that, that the idea of, of some kind of uh, strike on, on Zaporizhia or any other nuclear power plants would, would actually not be, uh, would not have, a, would not be in line with the energy uh, 
strategy and would just be would be a massive escalation in terms of the radiological fallout from it, um, literal and figurative fallout. And so I just wonder if if actually, whilst I accept it is vital ground today, I wonder for how much longer that is. I think I think the the longer term vital ground for Ukraine is that support, that political support from externals. I don't want to just say the West, because there's many other countries outside of the West who support Ukraine, but it's such easy shorthand and it takes me longer to explain this. I might just stick with the West a bit, to be honest, from now on. Um, so I just wonder if, if the, 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 the efforts we see there, these conversations that we know Putin has with um, Chancellor Schultz and uh, President Macron and others, uh, I just wonder if he's going to then start moving into that front and sees that as the vital ground. But hey, that's another conversation for another day. But for right now, I think, yeah, for the foreseeable future, um, I agree that I think these, these nuclear power plants are the, are the areas to watch and, and it needs urgent uh, world attention. Calling the UN. Thank you very much, uh, Dom Hamish. Do you want to add to that, or shall we move to John Spencer? Well, well, ju- ju- just very quickly, I-, I absolutely agree with John. The way the way ahead is a demilitarized zone, a DMZ, around Zaporizhia and the other nuclear power stations, uh, probably run by the IEA, uh, which is the, the UN's body on this. Maybe needed to be supported elsewhere, but. You know, if the Russians were serious about not wanting to create a massive radiological problem, then then hopefully they would go to that. I still, I'm still not clear in my own mind about the Crimea itself, and and perhaps um, you know that that is an area that we we need to look at and consider in future whether if Ukraine did take that on, uh, take that over in the next few weeks or months, that might seriously change the direction of this um, conflict. Well, thank you very much, um, Hamish. Do do stay for the rest of the talk. We're talking now to John Spencer, our guest today. Um, I think actually this, this Hamish, what you've been saying leads into what we're going to be talking a bit with John about kind of perfectly. The reason uh, Crimea is becoming vital ground for Ukraine is due to, to, to a huge part to the success of the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, John Spencer, before, be, before we get into the details of this, can you just tell us um, a little bit about yourself and your experience, your background? Sure. Thanks, David. So I'm John Spencer. I'm the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Forum, host of the Urban Warfare Project podcast. I spent 25 years in the U.S. Army as an infantry soldier and officer. And then about a decade ago, I started focusing solely on urban warfare. Uh, Recently wrote a book called Understanding Urban Warfare, but I've been focused on researching, writing, uh, training militaries, just studying solely combat in urban areas for a long time now um, and, and have been very interested in, in taking, I'm sure we'll talk about it, a very direct role in the war in Ukraine because it has been in the lessons that should be there is that all roads lead to urban. Um, in, in the Ukraine war, we know that this war started with the most important strategic objective was to Kiev, the the seat of political power. The Russians failed at that, and there's lots of reasons why they did, but uh, the urban terrain is unavoidable, and that's that's what I study, that's what I teach, that's what I write about. So let's talk a little bit about the Battle of Kiev. You went to Ukraine in the summer to study it. Um, What did you learn? I mean, you you just mentioned that, as we know, that the Russians failed in their objective to capture it. Um, Why did they fail? Well, that's a long list, um, uh, really, of reasons both in terrain. Uh, every city is different. I went there to study, I think it is the most important battle of the 
modern era, uh, a, a single decisive battle as it achieved Ukraine's strategic objectives of, at the time, surviving the Russian invasion. And it, and it took away Russia's strategic objective, which was to basically do a regime change, put in a, their own proxy. Um, I walked the ground in places like Bucha, Erpin, Mashoun, Bravari, to get an understanding of just how did the Ukrainians do it with really just a, a single mechanized brigade and a couple artillery units defend against the second most powerful military on paper. We've learned that that's not true anymore. Well, they did it with a mix of um, civilian support. Uh, they did it with a mix of understanding the terrain better from even raising the river, raising the water levels of the rivers, um, blocking all the roads, blowing all the bridges, arming uh, 20,000 civilians on a single day with an AK-47 and two magazines, con- you know, creating basically a castle uh, and closing the gates of the castle of Kiev, which actually is very applicable to this ancient city that, that grew on, on the river. They closed the gates. Um, they, they funneled the Russians who had their own problems of being able to do joint joint warfare, but closed the gates, created death traps, took away the the airfield that the Russians tried to use. And the Russians had multiple courses of actions on how they would achieve um, taking down Kiev, but every one of them failed in a, in a lot of part due to some genius actions by Ukraine and by the, the sheer will to fight of the Ukrainian soldiers and really important, the Ukrainian civilians, which is very unique to this battle, was the really the mobilization of the civilian population. Well, there's there's so much to get into this. Um, I'd, we'd like to talk a little bit about the, the mobilization of civilians later, but just uh, still talking relatively broadly, I mean, did anything surprise you about what you learned uh, about the Battle of Kiev? Was there anything that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot. I mean, I learned so much and I met so many amazing people the, the, that came out on day one to resist. Um, I, th- I found the, the use of the infrastructure. So in my world, I, I often have to explain to people what is urban, although most people think they know um, that it's just a bunch of buildings. But by definition, urban means that there's a lot of buildings on, on top of you know, natural terrain. There's a population and then there's the infrastructure to support that population. That's the definition for us of urban. Well, in the Battle of Kiev, uniquely, not not the first one in history, but uniquely, it wasn't the actual fighting of buildings that, that came into play. It was how the Ukrainians used the population and the infrastructure to support their objective of defending terrain to buy time. You know, that was the key. If you can stop the shock and all the attacker wants to use speed, and they should, if you could slow them down just a little bit, buy time for other resources to become, and this is what we saw in the Battle of Kiev, is that they 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 ground the Russians to a halt, but that wasn't all that had to be done. Other forces had to be brought in. You had to trick the, the Russians who thought that it would be a short mission. I learned so much in all the different areas that I couldn't have gotten had I had I not walked the ground. And that's a real big part of my research. Uh, I, I went to Nagorno-Karabakh last year. I you know, spent a lot of times because terrain matters. Despite what we talk about a lot in the science of warfare and all the technologies and the weapons, 
it comes it, it often comes down to terrain and terrain really matters in warfare and really the battle of kiev is such a great example in so many ways even the battle the the skirmish or the the smaller battle of mashun where the russians had found a way to get past all the kiev units and defenders and, and if they would have gotten through that unit in this village of mashun on the outskirts of kiev they might have been able to penetrate all the way into kiev but this you know single company uh, force with some civilian defenders held off using the terrain again using the fact that militaries really can't cross rivers very well and it's a it's a, a, a sometimes unpracticed drill to cross obstacles whether it's a water obstacle or you you park a bus in the middle of the road it's going to be a big problem for militaries and we saw all of this so um, there is a long list of what I learned but I was really surprised about the rivers how the Ukrainians um, flooded some areas but they also just raised the river not just to Irpin but two other rivers to create even bigger obstacles for the Russians to again buy time to target them to break them apart all these things principles of urban warfare that have spanned uh, history, but I, I couldn't find any other battle that I know of where the Ukrainians did it so quickly of using their city as a weapon. This is um, absolutely fascinating, John. Thank you so much. Just projecting forward, I'm, I'm curious to ask, obviously, we're, t- we're talking just now about the Battle of Kiev, that that opened the defense of the city, the successful defense of the city opened um, the, the, the invasion, really. Um, looking forward over the last few months and to today, do you see, how do you see both sides um, evolving their tactics? Do, you, do, do we think that the Russians have learned much since, since their failed assault on the capital? And how have the Ukrainians changed their approach or developed or, or um, changed their, their own tactics? Yeah, that's a big one, and, and this is why I come to to your space week, you know, uh, daily and weekly, is to learn, because this war has so many lessons for for me, and, and not just because I'm the urban guy, but what battle we have we've been talking about, whether it's Bakhmut, Kherson, uh, Lyman, the battles to come over Kramatorsk or you know, uh, Donetsk or Lynette, they're urban areas. They are urban areas have this problem of popping up on where you want to go. The road that you, you want to take, whether it's the major highway or not, is going to go through urbans. Yes, the Russians did learn from their mistakes. And, and once they changed their overall objective, they were able to focus in on a smaller objective and create a little bit of a gain. That's what we saw you know, when they focused on the Donbass. They, they started to actually use their own doctrine and using mass and artillery fire. But the Ukrainians also learned and you showed the world that they can use their weapons more effectively. And in another battle, which will go down and I write case studies um, at the Modern War Institute where I take a, a battle and I write a case study to try to summarize it. And everybody kept asking me in the Battle of Kherson is when is it going to get to the house to house fighting and how how destructive is that going to be on the city? And like, look, every city is different. The Ukrainians learned and and used their weapon systems to create the effect that they wanted, which is make the terrain untenable for the Russian forces who were occupying the city. And, and they had no choice but to withdraw or die. So they didn't need to go house to house. And that's kind of the problem with uh, some, t- some mental frameworks on urban warfare. But the different battles, like the Battle of Mariupol was night and day to the Battle of Kherson because of the different context and different variables 
of the terrain, the the actual objective for the city, all these variables I think will come to play as we see you know, what I think will be the Ukrainians continuing to to advance in the offense, but taking each bit of terrain and going through all the mission variables and all, all the variables that we talk about in the military to do it a, in a better way and to not play to your enemy's strengths. And I think that's what we've seen as well. The Russians, when they did learn from their mistakes of trying to do this massive countrywide uh, seven avenues of approach sp- spread too thin that, okay, w- we can't do that. So let's, let's do massing. Well, the Ukrainians didn't give them that. The Ukrainians are not going to you know, mass and clash in the open terrain. They're picking them apart behind their lines, taking, attacking the logistical lines, making it so it's untenable for the Russians to stay where they're at. Or in the case of Bakhmut, which is, you know, might not make the definition of urban at this point um, based on civilian population and infrastructure left. But if the enemy wants to continue to smash against your defense... Don't interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake and, and keep letting the Russians die over Bakhmut, which has no real operational significance. But tactically, if that's where the Russians want to die, then the Ukrainians are, are giving them that. Thanks, John. Can I just take you back? I realize in, in this podcast now, I'm the only one without any military experience compared to Hamish Dom and yourself. Um, so I'm just going to ask a question for, for those of us who, who are not involved in, in the military. You mentioned... You said that the Ukrainians are going to be considering all of the variables, all the different sort of variables you consider in the military when you're planning an assault to take back land, take back cities. Could you walk us through, walk the listeners through what those variables might be? What will they be looking at? What will they be um, balancing when they think of the, 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 the coming advance? Sure. I didn't know I would get tested, although um, having, knowing that Dom's here in, in, in some of the past episodes, I, I thought I might be ready. And I did teach strategy and tactics at West Point while I was there. So what I was talking about is usually what we refer to as the mission variables, right? The the mission, like what is the, the actual objective of this operation? And the Ukrainians are doing just these amazing planning process. And we've seen videos of their rehearsals and their, their whiteboards or the terrain models. So the mission, the enemy situation, the, the terrain, and, and when you get to urban warfare, that, that, that has a lot of variables in just a terrain variable uh, the troops available, what what formations do you have available? Do you have armor? Do you have a mix of everything from Humvees to MRAPs to Bushmashers? Um, how much infantry do you have? Uh, t- the time available, because time is always a factor in, in, based on, and we've seen this in the operational level and at the tactical level, time versus terrain and the Ukrainians' ability to maneuver forces, whether it's reserves or just uh, cover large amounts of terrain faster than the Russians, was a big part, I think, of the last, um, the Kharkiv offensive was their mobility and ability. But these things we call mission of variables. So we call it METTC. And of course, you have civilian considerations in there. Those are the kinds of things that you every military before an operation goes through those variables and the impacts it will have on the on the mission each one of the variables will have an impact on you and have an impact on the your enemy and have it if it's urban terrain have an impact on the civilian population and there's all the planning and this is the deliberate process which we are seeing 
the Ukrainians just get better and better at. I'm so impressed what what I see, um, not just in their morale and their the the way they carry themselves and their equipment and all of that, but the fact that they're going through this planning process and these mission variables, like we saw. I know that was a major consideration in, in the Battle of Kherson was you analyzing the enemy and, and each one of these variables, you know, opens up to pages of, of sub variables, analyzing the enemy's strengths to determine what, what attacks and what fires matrix and things like that, that you're going to do in the operation. Hopefully that covers it without, you know, teaching a class. No, no, that was brilliant. Thank you, John. And just a couple more questions from me before we'll bring in uh, Hamish and Tom, who I'm sure have many questions as well. Um, we've got a question from a, li- a listener just asking to hear a little bit more about uh, Valery Zeluzhny. He's this is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of Ukraine. And we, I mean, you've spoken a lot about what the Ukrainians are doing. Can you talk to us a little bit about their, their commander-in-chief? Well, I know he's a new guy on the block. I mean, there's kind of a ro- revolving door of Russian generals, which is not a good sign. Um, I mean, you, oh, Zeluzhny. Oh, I thought you were ta- talking about the Russian general. Okay, sorry. Uh, it, it, amazing. Uh, actually, you know, not that much in the in the public eye, which is interesting. Uh, but clearly, the one of the the heroes that will go down in his ability to have that all these principles of war. And I know we talked about these on the on the space before. Um, the elements of operational art, uh, the fact that you see him um, through you know, on the battlefield, but. Uh, he gets a lot of credit. Um, his background is very unique as well. But um, to to be able to lead a military through these phases of a war like this, and to keep that unity of command, to manage the inflow of of, of weapons and supply, and to do this is I, I'm amazed. As much as I am amazed by President Zelensky, is that the relationship too between which I did a lot of, of talking about, you know, the, there's always a relationship between the generals and the political leaders. And there's all these war theories about, you know, stay at, the general wants the politician to stay out of the way and just let me execute this war. You can see there's a relationship between Zeluzhny and Zelensky, that there, it is a, a actual back and forth relationship with input for the political objectives, with the best military advice. I, 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 again, I'm, I'm not. I am pro-Ukrainian to a fault because they are the good guys. But I, I'm thoroughly impressed as a student of the history of war and the great captains, as we call them, the generals that achieve their their nation's political goals. Um, he has been at the center of this and, and deserves a lot of credit. Thank you so much, John. Just one more um, question from me. Um, can we talk a little bit about your 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 handbook, your book, Understanding Urban Warfare? Because it's it's sort of, I think, as we can understand, as we can say, it sort of went viral over the past um, over, over, over the course of this invasion and has been used, as we understand, uh, in the defense of Ukraine. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and how did that happen? Sure. So w- what you're talking about is my mini manual for the urban defender. So the book Understanding Urban Warfare is a book I published. Recently. Forgive me. Yes. Yes. No, no problem. You can you can buy the one on Amazon if you'd like. Uh, but the so the mini manual for the urban defender is it, just um, a very humbling project I've been involved with on on February twenty fourth when the the Russians invaded and I saw calls going out to the Ukrainian civilians literally over the radio, which is saying resist, make Molotov cocktails and resist. So I started tweeting. Uh, Here are the things that I would do based on. A little bit of research and a little bit of experience in urban warfare. These are the things that that civilians could do to help resist: setting up roadblocks, setting, you know, ensuring that they stay protected and, and and utilize the urban terrain to their advantage. 
Well, those tweets became a manual, and I called it the mini manual for the Urban Defender. And, and I just released version five, which actually I used a lot of the stuff I've learned when I went to Ukraine and studied what they had done that had worked to then teach me about, like the use of the infrastructure, to add to the manual. Well, the, the manuals, now it's 100 pages long, includes everything from how to purify water to how to set up different types of obstacles, how to park buses in the road and, and use the train to achieve your objectives. It's also been translated now. Of course, it was translated in Ukrainian. Um, by March, the Ukrainian uh, government had put it out on their website for resistors. And then one of the publishers in Ukraine printed you know, up to 100,000 copies and it was distributed all across Ukraine. So very humbling. But then it was also translated because it is this really this manual for civilians to rapidly understand with simple diagrams, simple instructions, what they can do to help you know, defend their cities, help their militaries. Uh, it is a very kind of for a civilian, but I also used to be a ranger instructor. So I, I put some stuff in there about how to do an ambush correctly, um, how to carry your weapon correctly. Um, it's also now been translated into about 14. The number keeps increasing different languages because there is this, this, this ideal of total resistance or total defense where your civilian population will assist the military in defending their terrain against really evil. Um, so there's been a lot of people interested in it across the world, but it started very specifically to help Ukrainians defend their cities. And I was humbled to see, I just started receiving pictures from around Ukraine where people were using it to you know, train territorial defenses or even in the, in the army. And, and it's it is almost gained its own momentum. But I just released a new version, version five, which you can get, um, you can download in PDF at my website, johnspenceronline.com. Just out of interest, just before... So, so, sorry, Tom, sorry, Hamish, I know you must have questions, but I'm really curious. So you say there's five versions now. What what are the new things you've added to it then? Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, I did get a lot of requests what to add, and there's some restrictions, but some of the recent things I've added were like how to use small arms, machine guns, and other direct fire weapons against slow-moving drones or helicopters, which is which is old, like the Gephardt, if you just put a lot of lead in front of the thing and let it run into it, it'll actually bring things down. I added a, 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 some new stuff about weapons. Uh, how, uh, I added actually law of war because I think that's really important. And what Ukraine has done from the beginning is, is kept not only their, their just cause, but also the just execution of the way they're fighting to keep their alliances and keep their, 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 you know, their hope alive. I, so I put stuff in there about the law of war. I added more medical, you know, because a, you know, a tourniquet can save lives on the battlefield, but I added more stuff about medical in there. And I really went back as I was, you know, first version one, two, and three were very frantically, you know, just get pushing them out as, as the need was requiring. You know, I even learned from Ukrainians about different types of obstacles that um, I put more detail so that, you know, other Ukrainians in other cities could do rapidly or I refined a lot of the information based on what I've learned from the Ukrainians themselves on my tours. And I had more time. So the, the, it's really a rewrite. Version 5 is really a rewrite from the earlier version, which was the book that you know, had, a, had a part in the, the Ukraine's defense. Thank you so much for all of that, John. Thank you for answering all, all the questions there. Um, Hamish and Dom, I'm sure you've got questions for John. Um, I will let any of you come in when you like. 
John, fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. I, I mean, we are very lucky that we have a huge number of people inside Ukraine listening to this right now, and they will be downloading the, the podcast later, many of whom may not have been able to get access to the, to the mini-manual. What simple practical things could you say to, did you think the most important are to give them right now, and it might be you know, weapons or medical or, or tank traps or what have you, but a couple of things they can do this afternoon, right now, what would you suggest? So, I mean, if, if you put a knife to my back, I mean, number one is understanding how to stay protected from aerial munitions to direct fire. The urban terrain is called the great equalizer for a reason, is that if, if, if you're a defender, it's ripe with military already developed terrain, uh, especially the underground. The underground has always been the refuge for anybody. So if, if there isn't an underground already, you know, in, in the open terrain or in the wooded terrain, you have to dig trenches. But in the urban terrain, you can connect buildings um, underground. You can use the sewer networks to plan to move and, and strike and use guerrilla tactics. Um, know which buildings you're going to use for whatever defensive purposes because all buildings are not made the same. You know, a, a heavy clad steel reinforced concrete building is going to be a really important building to any defender. Or if you're... You, if you just want to stay protected, there's, you can slow the military down. Even if it's not a city that the military is attacking, one of the first things I put out, which the Ukrainians started to do, was um, just block all the roads. Block every road, block every alley, every street. It'll slow down and buy time, which can be really life or death in an urban warfare scenario. Thank you. And so we've been discussing uh, Ukraine and I just wonder if there's anything specific or unique to the uh, to the construct of urban environments in Ukraine, anything from the sort of the, the Soviet um, history, the, the way they, they built their towns, the way they lay out their roads. So in the context of sort of recent thinking of fighting in Mosul and Fallujah and other, other urban environments that we've seen, are there any particular characteristics about Ukraine that really we haven't seen very far around the rest of the world? So that's an interesting question is because even Ukraine, there's great variable, you know, great differences. But the Soviet bloc apartment building complexes are very strongly built. And often um, there is also often a warehouse district, as we've seen in places like Severodonetsk or in Mariupol. These factory areas uh, usually are very defendable, very uh, important military objectives because they give you line of sight. They give you lots of places to hide uh, it, it, there's lots of things there. And this is really what the advantage to any Ukrainian in any city across Ukraine is that they understand the cities, their cities, both how to get in, how to move around, what are the best buildings to attack from, how to shoot and move than any other Russian ever will because they it's their city. But there's some uniqueness to the constructions of the buildings. And this is, again, it... it if you're in a, any city, any urban areas, understanding which buildings are going to be best for whatever mission you have, whether it's to defend or whether you're attacking um, the different routes. And I, this is what we saw during this war is that the Ukrainians understood not only their their cities, but how to get into their cities and, and, the, and the major choke points and the bridges that people will need to all these things that... I always say there's two challenges in urban warfare. One, there's a challenge of understanding the urban environment. Ukrainians will always have the advantage there. And then the second one is understanding how to use the urban terrain to fight. 
whether it's to attack or to defend, that's something that I think my manual can give a little helpful hints that have worked across history. So that's, I don't rely on my own experiences from the, you know, the, from Stalingrad to the Battle of Berlin to the Battle of Seoul, Hawaii, these iconic urban battles, there's things that just keep repeating themselves. The use of barriers, the use of snipers, the use of ambushes, uh, whether it's the Battle of Grozny, you know, where where all forces have defeated uh, or, or at least definitely messed up the plan of, of, of a greater by number. The Ukrainian military is, of course, greater than the Russian military, but sometimes there is a numerical disadvantage, and the urban train equalizes that. It's Hamish, perhaps I could come in here quickly, and John, you and I could probably speak all day, and you, you talk about drones and small arms fire. When I was with the Peshmerga, they fired thousands of small arms at ISIS drones with various degrees of success. But um, what I also saw in my time in Syria is, um, you know, when towns and cities are razed to the ground, it gets incredibly difficult for the attacker. Uh, and in Syria, the Syrians were, were very frequently using incendiary weapons, mainly white phosphorus, to set fire to towns and villages to sort of smoke people out. But most, uh, m- most sort of clear and, and devastating in my mind was actually Aleppo, back in December 2016, where uh, after the Syrians had fought conventionally for four years in the last year of that with the Russians and getting nowhere, they then used chlorine barrel bombs for 15 days, which, uh, with everybody hiding underground, smoked them out and was decisive, as it was the next year in, um, in Ghouta, a suburb of Damascus, and the year after in Douma, uh, that uh, was actually chlorine that, that brought an end to those sieges. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that the, the Russians would use that, um, but we did see at the beginning of the war when they were on the offensive, um, the use of things like white phosphorus as incendiary weapons. Um, is this something that, that, that you've seen? And, um, you know, is this, it, it, it struck me, particularly in Syria, it was pretty viable but these are horrific and illegal weapons. But if you have no morals or scruples, the lecture I gave last week in Cambridge, you would use these sort of weapons all the time. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And, and what we've seen with the Russians is that they, they really don't, they use war crimes as a method of warfare. Some of the things that, made, that, that I thought about as you were asking me that question was that I actually added to this version of my manual, why defend? Because across history, if... Step one of attacking any urban area is to isolate it. You can do that with fires or you can just completely encircle it like they did at the Battle of Mosul with 100,000 security forces to encircle 5,000 ISIS inside of it. So step one of if you're you're defending is don't let them isolate you. Um, you, The other aspect is, is like you said, the paradox of being in the urban terrain is that the more you bomb it, the more defendable it is. Because a rubbleized building is a lot more defendable than a building that hasn't been struck. It, that that was the learned in Stalingrad when the Luftwaffe you know, destroyed eighty percent of the city, which meant that they couldn't bring the tanks in later and made it a very close fight to happen. But you, know, some people believe that the age of the siege warfare is back. You know, but again, you have to understand those mission variables, like in the Battle of Mariupol, where three thousand brave Ukrainians were encircled and sieged 
but they held down 20,000 Russians for over 80 days and actually achieved an operational effect of not allowing those Russians to then go attack things in the north and or in Donbass. So they, they achieved the mission part of the, the variable, but each one matters. But if you encircle a city, um, it, th- there's so many variables, even from the siege of Sarajevo, which is longest modern siege, lasted three years because it was, it was really no, never um, isolated. There were tunnels that could get things in, there's, you could get people in and out. So the battles in, of Syria, like Aleppo and uh, others, it is you know, unfortunate when you can encircle a city and, and just bomb it into submission because the variable of time is, is not there. And you can cause, you don't care about your war crimes and using starvation and using chemical weapons. You know, that's a different level in, in, in a situation that is, is very troubling which I think the the world should be watching in Russia's execution, right? The just war, Geneva Conventions. If none of it is upheld, what does that mean for the future of state state on state warfare? Hamish, do you want to um, add to that at all? Um, no, I, I quite agree, and it's um, it is such a a challenging part of warfare. And I do. I was just very struck by the sort of methods that uh, that the Russians. Uh, we're using there and you know when they talk about the force flags at the beginning of the war you sort of realize that yeah the geneva conventions and the rules of war are something that don't constrain them and in fact they use by by um by by not adhering to them they they're, they're using it to further terrify people and their whole campaign of of attacking the civilian instru- infrastructure and civilians they seem to think that that will make civilians capitulate but but actually the, of course you know morale is is a tremendous thing and it's actually uh, improving the morale and the ter- determination of the civilians to resist uh, in ukraine and it didn't really work in syria anyway so i don't know but but again they will do anything for to try and stave off defeat um, at this stage. So I think we've just got to be prepared, which is why I, I know we're coming to the end. <laughs> and I just wanted to um, uh, uh, say a little thing about uh, the um, training courses on Telegram that we've published in Ukraine so that civilians um, can survive a, a nuclear accident or other dreadful weapons. Um, I did tweet it a little bit earlier on with all you guys tagged in. And uh, if you can share uh, that would be great because it's already got wide coverage. Uh, and I sort of want Putin to know that people are prepared. So don't bother to use these weapons because they won't be effective. And Hamish, very quickly, what is the name of, of the app? Just so uh, listeners later on the podcast will know. Yeah, it's the Thompson Foundation app uh, that, that has been tagged. It is uh, on Telegram. And uh, basically, it's a 10-minute 10, 10 course in both Ukrainian and English, which tells you how to prepare and in the event of, of of this happening, an accident or an attack, what to do in order that you can survive. Because as long as you're not in the immediate vicinity, you do the right things, you should survive. And reaction to this type of attack or accident is sort of counterintuitive, why it's worth just spending 10 minutes looking at the uh, at the video on the app. Um, just one quick question, John, before we start to wrap up. Um, we've got a question coming in from Kiev asking uh, to talk a little bit about uh, the lack of electricity. And, and obviously, this is a big thing at the moment, thanks to the uh, the strikes on infrastructure. Um, what kind of advice would you give to civilians who are who are experiencing um, you know, a lack of heating, a lack of energy, a lack of electricity as well? 
Yeah, that's a that's a, a really important one. I, um, this ideal also of being able to attack the will of the people which clearly won't work. I mean, you know, dealing with the, the blackouts in individual cities and having a plan for um, warming of individuals, there's a lot of just pragmatic things that, that Kiev is showing the world that, that can be done um, about the, the use of sleeping bags or, you know, cutting, you know, putting blankets up on doors and creating one warm space. Um, lots being done there, but I, I don't have any advice that's not already being, I think, put out hopefully by um, like the mayor and other individuals. This is, again, why I've learned so much from the people of Ukraine and, and especially uh, citizens of Kiev, but everywhere about what are the things that um, that do work and, and that other people can learn from. Um, because everything from the requirements of modern warfare down to the pragmatic things of how to keep yourself warm, uh, the Ukrainians are showing the world uh, that they're going to keep um, adapting, they're going to keep innovating, and they're going to keep fighting. John, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to hear? No, I mean, I, I really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of the show. I, I think that this is not a fight. This is, of course, Ukrainians fighting for their freedom and for their land, but they're fighting for Europe, and they're fighting for the free world. Um, if they have not, if they would not have resisted, the world would have changed, and Putin and other dictators like him would have been given a green light to do recolonization, wars of aggression, war crimes. Uh, they're doing so much, and I, I, I'm so uh, respectful of the, the, the resistance of the Ukrainians every day and, and, and your space, which talks about it and, and brings the news to the world. Well, thank you very much, John, and thank you for, very much for joining us. Um, can I just ask all of you now briefly for your, for your final thoughts? What will you be looking at uh, and thinking of and what would you want your, our listeners to know about over the next few days? Uh, Dom Nichols, why don't you go first? Sure. Well, I just want to finish, if I may, by talking about what all the lessons that, that John and Hamish have talked about today that are, are really applicable for individuals under this bombardment and under the threat of chemical biological warfare. But very luckily and very selfishly, most people listening to this, ourselves included here, are not under these under these uh, threats and under this, this risk today. However, we also, I think, need to think about our own societal resilience. We were chatting just before this started. How much money have you got in your pocket right now? I've literally got no cash. I mean, that's not the old Santa's pat about. I'm sorry, I haven't got any cash on me. But, you know, I literally don't have any cash on me. I've got my contact list card. And if that goes down, then then we're snookered. If you've got no, no money in the hole in the wall or, you know, the, the card doesn't work on the tube and the bus and what have you so just think about our own societal resilience and if this is we're in a long fight now and we are as i say most of us are lucky enough not to be under the under daily bombardment but we can still do our we can still do our bit which is to keep ourselves informed and to keep the conversation going we all know about ukraine fatigue we've heard that we've heard the term you get it in every kind of every war every big effort um i, I would just ask that we all just just look after ourselves, look after our, our mental health, because you've got you to take a break from this stuff every now and again. But keep engaged and keep keep informing other people. That I, the amount of conversations I have when people say, oh, well, it's, it's all finished, isn't it? Or Ukraine can't win. And I just think you've not you've not seen any news for, well, arguably 10 months. So I would just ask us all to think about our own resilience and what we can do from this from this flank, albeit from afar, and I'm not belittling that at all. Um, we are nice and safe here, but we can still do our bit, keep ourselves informed and help to inform others. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. Uh, I'd reiterate what Dom said there. I think as, as we get into the festive period, 
um, the, the chance to uh, rather worry about ourselves and all the things that vexing people in this country uh, and others in the West. Uh, really, if we get if we get this wrong, um, they're, they're quite frankly irrelevant. You know, the, the inflation, the price of fuel and food will go down once Ukraine is sorted out. And uh, it's those people who are doing the fight, you know, the boots on the ground, if you like, to keep um, the tyrant Putin at bay, which is so essential. And we must not forget them and we must keep supporting them with every nerve and sinew uh, over these uh, very difficult next couple of cold and uh, wet months in Ukraine. Thank you, Dom. Thank you very much, Hamish. John Spencer, as our guest, would you like the very, very final thoughts? Sure. I'll just piggyback on that because I do believe the moral factor in war is three to one to the physical. And no matter where they are in Ukraine, whether it's the soldier, the territorial defense, the leadership, keeping that moral factor, keeping the morale high, keeping the hope that the world is behind them and that their their suffering is valued and that there is a very clear path to victory and that there's the U.S., the, the West, 50-plus nations are in it until they win. Keeping that hope alive and, and, and reminding everyone that, that that is the path that Putin has already lost, Russia will lose, and Ukraine will prevail. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.